You're listening to a sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary North. We exist to see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied, all to the glory of God. For more information, visit redemptioncalgarynorth.com. You know, the one nice thing about the uh, snow and winter coming is it's sweater weather again. Pull out your old sweaters. I know you're tired of wearing shorts and t-shirts, so good to have the winter clothes back in action. So we're, we're taking a break from the book of Genesis this morning, and uh, for those of you who are new, maybe you don't know, I'm not Pastor Trevor. Uh, my name is Pastor Michael. I'm oversee uh, discipleship here at Redemption Church, and Pastor Trevor is actually in Ontario today. He's preaching at another GCC church, and all the staff will actually be joining him in Ontario on Tuesday. We're going to the GCC annual conference there in Oakville, so look forward to that. should be a nice time to be encouraged and equipped. Um, so uh, this morning, instead of being in Genesis, I, I want us to think about a, re- a really important topic uh, but I want to introduce that by just by asking you if you've ever seen the PBC program Antique Roadshow. Who's seen Antique Roadshow? All right, good, good. Yeah, it's, it's actually been on TV for almost 25 years. Uh, for those who haven't seen it, uh, the show is people bring their antiques so an appraiser can tell them the history of an item and its value. Uh, the person is either amazed by how much it's worth or disappointed that they own a piece of junk. Uh, the show visited the town I lived in about 10 years ago, and on, on that particular episode, one man brought in a, some Ty Cobb memorabilia because his parents were personal friends with the baseball player, and that was valued at 40 Gs. Another man brought in a painting done by his dad, and that was actually valued at 15K. And yet another person, his grandmother was Norman Rockwell's aunt. So he had these paintings sitting in his garage, and they were worth half a million dollars. And it's really a fascinating show. It's, it's especially interesting to watch how the appraisers verify a piece's authenticity and determine if it's genuine. Uh, they'll look at the markings, the, the distinct style, the, the time period indicators. Uh, they'll look for symbols or stamps or inscriptions or signatures or trademarks, and all these These clues help them decide if it's authentic. And while the title of this morning's message is, A True Disciple, and just as people on the Antique Roadshow want to know if something is genuine, so too we must understand what are the marks of an authentic disciple. Uh, When it comes to saving faith, an artificial knockoff, it just won't do. We need to have the real thing. Counterfeit Christianity is a false hope. Listen, if, if we don't understand the marks of a true disciple, we risk living a lie. Only biblically defined disciples will enter the kingdom of heaven. So how do we know if, if we're a true disciple? Or how do we know what, what a true disciple is? And, and how do you know if you have the right priorities to cultivate your faith and to grow? Uh, these are critical questions. You see, during Jesus' earthly ministry, many people believed. Many people believed when they saw Jesus, when they saw His miracles, they witnessed His signs, and they believed. Not everyone who believed, however, had saving faith. 
Some only had an intellectual faith or an emotional faith or a sign faith. In other words, they had more of a, a self-serving faith. And it shriveled up when things got costly or when, or when it didn't deliver what they wanted. Uh, maybe just full disclosure here is you're already feeling that there's a certain kind of weight or urgency or heaviness to today's message. But I think it's appropriate, as you'll see when we get to the text. But I want to clarify, today's text is not meant to cause unnecessary doubt in your life. The purpose rather, is to describe the defining marks of a true disciple so that we have a biblically accurate understanding of what it means to be a Christ follower. Now, we're going to see this from the Gospel of John. Now, John's Gospel written as sort of a a gospel tract. It has a, a clear purpose statement towards the end of the book in John chapter 20, verse 31. It, it tells us, John wrote, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. The book was written so that you may believe, uh, more specifically, so that you may believe that Jesus is both Savior and God, and that your faith may result in eternal life. So John's gospel is written to produce a, a, a certain kind of faith, namely saving faith, and to encourage us to persevere in that faith. This is important because our passage for today brings us really to the heart of the matter. If John was written so that we can have life-giving faith, then we need to ask, what are the marks of a true disciple who has embraced Jesus by faith? You see, we live in a North American culture that has normalized nominal Christianity. So how can we clarify the non-negotiable requirements of an authentic disciple? What are the essential indicators that a person is a genuine follower of Christ? Is it faith alone? Well, well, sure, definitely. We understand that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The Bible, however, makes it very clear The genuine saving faith is life-changing. It produces evidences of grace. As the Reformer said, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. We know this is true because without without faith uh, works, excuse me, without a faith that works, that faith is dead. A faith that doesn't transform your life produces, uh, is suspect. Now, now, again, we, we don't need to be alarmist or fearful. We can and should have assurance of genuine faith as we live according to God's Word, not perfectly, but faithfully. But the topic for today remains urgent and critical because if we don't understand what it means to be a true disciple, we could be in danger of condemnation. The stakes are high and the consequences are real. So the big idea for today's passage is the distinguishing marks of a true disciple. Our text is about what does it mean to be an authentic Christian. And when these qualities are part of your life, they will confirm and cultivate your faith. So again, we're going to identify these three distinguishing marks of a true disciple and seek to apply them so that we can strengthen our faith. Before we do that, we're going to pray one more time. Uh, Father, we're in desperate need of the help of your Spirit this morning. Uh, We're so thankful that you've 
entrusted us and gifted us with your word, uh, now we ask that your spirit would give us eyes to see and behold Christ in it, and that, that you would enliven our hearts to engage with it and to apply it, to be doers of your word, and to hear the message. Lord, we believe for each of us uh, that you have a message for us today, and that, that we're here and, and we're sitting under the preaching of your word for a specific purpose. We pray that you'd work that purpose out in each of our hearts. We pray that your, your word would go forth with power and effectiveness. Uh, Lord, not my word, but your word. Uh, may that be what is heard today. Anything that's not of you, may it, may it be unheard, may it be unapplied. But what's true, uh, would, you, would you put it into our hearts and you bring conviction or encouragement or whatever the need is for each individual here. Uh, Lord, we love you and we, we thank you that we can gather together to worship and to hear from your word. Uh, would you show yourself mighty and glorious this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Or if you're not already there, please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand and our ushers will gladly supply you a copy to borrow or to keep. So to give you kind of a road map, um, I'm going to summarize the passage and then, then we'll look at it in more detail so that we can apply it to our lives more personally. As I said, the main goal is to observe three distinguishing marks of a true disciple, and then we can apply those marks in a way that will actually confirm and cultivate our faith. Now, let's begin in John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. Uh, these first two verses of our passage kind of neatly outline the purpose of the passage. Uh, follow along as I begin in verse 31, John chapter 8, verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now stop there. In order to appreciate these verses, uh, we need to place them within their context. Jesus had recently traveled from Galilee to Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths. And while at the feast, he was amazing the crowds and aggravating the Jewish leaders with his teachings. He claimed that he is from the Father and his teaching is from God. He also taught that those who believe in him will receive the Holy Spirit, while those who do not believe in him will die in their sin. He taught that he is the light of the world and that he must return to the Father. The crowds were divided, right? They're at the feast, they're hearing Jesus teach, and they're divided. They don't know what to think of Jesus. They don't know what to make of him. There were many, however, who believed the verse before, in verse 30, it says, As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Well, so this is good news, right? That's great. Some see and some believe. Uh, Jesus, however, knows better. He, he knows that not all who believe have saving faith. He knows that the demons believe and shudder. And he knows that some people only want a miracle worker. Some people are only putting their faith in a political savior. That's why we read in verse 31 that Jesus had a message for the Jews who had believed. Someone accepted Jesus' teaching without really committing themselves to him personally. They had not fully embraced Jesus or become true disciples. They wanted to associate with Jesus, at least while he was popular. But when they were called to total surrender, they were less sure. True discipleship requires complete allegiance. It's not merely agreeing with his teaching or a willingness to associate with him. 
Jesus, therefore, took the opportunity to clarify true discipleship. And he insists that the would-be disciples understand the commitment and count the cost. So again, we read in verses 31 and 32, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Here we have three distinguishing marks of a true disciple. A true disciple abides in Jesus' word, knows the truth, and is set free from slavery to sin. Uh, Notice the progression here. A genuine follower of Christ abides in Jesus and his word, and as a result, he or she is growing in the knowledge of the truth, right? They're communing with Christ, and that's informing their their mind and their conscience and their heart. They're growing in the truth, which in turn is kind of a, a sort of a safeguard against a pattern of unconfessed sin. Also notice that this means that there are three types of people. There are genuine believers, obvious unbelievers, and ambiguous kind of make-believers. There are real and unreal disciples. And it's important that we know the difference. As we, if you were to continue to read the rest of chapter 8, uh, the, all the way to the end of the chapter, it gives sort of a case study of the marks of a true disciple. And, and we'll see a little bit later that the Jews, the Jewish listeners, the audience, they failed the test. They failed miserably. But we want to consider these distinguishing marks of a true disciple more personally and, and apply them more personally. As we do, I want, to, I want to remind you just to keep in mind again, these are, these are not merely kind of a passive checklist to evaluate your life and decide either you're in or you're out. That, that, that's not the purpose here. And Jesus did give these marks as a way to identify true disciples and as a way to expose false believers, but they are also a way to confirm and cultivate your faith. They're a way to be encouraged and to say, you know what, this is what I need to pursue. This is what God requires of me as a follower of Him. But because these qualities are essential to a true disciple, we ought to depend on grace and the power of the Spirit to actively grow these areas in our life. Okay, with that kind of context and, and summary, are you ready? Are you ready to understand and see Three marks of authentic Christian living, of a true disciple, and by way of application, a way to strengthen our own faith. The first is this, remain in Christ. Remain in Christ. Look again at verse 31. So Jesus said to the disciples who had believed in him, to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. That word if, it, it can be kind of confusing because it's said in English, it sounds like a condition, if then. But Greek has, I think, five ways of doing a conditional statement. This particular one signals a universal truth, a, a universal truth. True disciples abide in Jesus' word, that they remain in Christ, they persevere, no exceptions. So true disciples abide in Christ and His word. Uh, so we need to ask, what does Jesus mean when He says, abide in my word. What's going on here? Well, the concept of abiding is common in John's writing. Uh, we have several verses I'll put up on the screen here just to, just to hear kind of abiding in the gospel of John. In John 6.56, it says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood 
abides in me and I in him. In other words, those who have a fully committed faith enjoy union with Christ. John 15, 9, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Remain in my love. Stay in my love. 1 John 2, 14, I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you. John 2, 24, let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you have heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. Verse 28, now, and now, little children, abide in Him so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. First John 4, 13, by this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us His Spirit. In verse 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God God abides in him, and he in God. Now, this is, just, this is only really a sampling of the many verses on abiding, but what we begin to see is that abiding describes a genuine believer. These are people who have confessed that Jesus is the Son of God, they have the indwelling Spirit, and they, are, they have some a, a confident assurance of their salvation. Uh, abiding, therefore, is an essential quality of a true disciple. The, There's also an inseparable connection between abiding in Christ and abiding in His Word. Notice that when Jesus says, abide in my word, that phrase, my word, is singular. Not abide in my words, but abide in my word. It's singular because it's referring to the sum of everything that Jesus taught and embodied. It, It really all focuses and comes back to Christ. In the Gospel of John, Jesus' message is, I'm the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. I'm the good shepherd. I'm in the Father. I'm the resurrection and the life. Again, John wrote his Gospel so that we may believe that Jesus is the Son of God. So when we abide in His Word, we're, we're abiding, we're remaining in everything that Jesus taught, and actually in Christ Himself who embodied what He taught. We can take that even Further, when we realize that that term for word is logos, an important theological term in John's writings. For example, in the beginning, John 1, 1 and 14, in the beginning was the word, was the logos, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus and his, and his gospel message are so kind of interwoven and tightly connected That Jesus can say, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, they go together. Jesus' message and his personhood, this is where we're remaining. So Jesus is saying, remain in the gospel message which is about me. Live there. Abide in the word. Camp in the gospel. Don't move on from it. Why? Because you need it. And because it makes much of Christ when we remain in Him. So so how do we do it? What does that even mean to abide in Christ, to to remain in Him? Well, to abide is to remain vitally connected to Christ and His love by faith. By a faith that's rooted in God's Word, which is made possible through the indwelling Spirit. 
So, so the, the daily kind of outworking of this abiding in Christ is a lifestyle of trusting God to, be, to meet all your needs and to be all your treasure, right? It's, it's a lifestyle of saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to organize and shape and schedule and, and kind of take ownership that I depend on God. I need to trust Him. It's really a daily declaration of our dependence on Him and, and our delight in Him. We depend on Him, we delight in Him, we trust Him, and we treasure Him. Abiding in Christ, therefore, requires kind of this reliance on the Holy Spirit to see and to savor the Lord through His Word, to believe the gospel daily, to rehearse the gospel to us daily, and to strive for holiness through grace-empowered effort. To abide in Jesus' Word, it really requires a deep and thoughtful and frequent meditation of God's Word, leading to a greater love for God Himself. To abide in His Word means to firmly hold on to the teachings of Christ, not, not merely as this kind of uh, doctrine, but as the means to get to Christ, right? We go to Jesus' teachings, we spend time in the Word because we want the end result, which is a relationship with Christ. We're willing to let the Bible dominate us so that every area of our life is brought under the control of God's Word. Every thought, deed, and action growing in conformity to the Scriptures. Those who abide in, in Christ and His Word, they don't fall away when they learn difficult truths. They continue to trust the Lord. They continue to organize their life around the Word, even though it means denying self and taking up their cross to follow Him. Sadly, the Jewish audience, the Jewish listeners at the time, they did not abide in Jesus' Word. If you jump down to verse 37, Jesus told them, I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me. Why? Because my word finds no place in you. Jesus' word, his message, his messianic claims, and his offer of eternal life, it found no place in them. Remember, these are the Jews that believed, but yet the word found no place in them. They weren't abiding, they weren't persevering, they weren't grasping the message of Christ and internalizing it. They were willing to tolerate Jesus and his message for a while, but when he made claims on their life and he required total allegiance, they bailed. In fact, they, they made complete reversal, and they conspired to eliminate Jesus. When you get down to it, there are two options on the shelf, abiding in Christ and serving self. Whichever one you choose, the other must die. You cannot serve two masters. Uh, so the question for you and me this morning is, do you remain in Christ do you abide in Him and His Word? Is your life structured in such a way that you depend on Christ and delight in Him? In other words, how much of your life would change? How much of your previous week would be different if the gospel weren't true? The answer to these questions become clearer as we, can, as we just continue trekking along in the passage. Because abiding in Christ leads to knowing the truth and freedom from habitual sin. So if you don't have an experiential, almost kind of unexplainable knowledge of the truth, or, or if you are a slave to sin, then it's possible 
then you're not abiding in Christ. Abiding in Christ leads to knowing the truth, which is why it's the second mark of a true disciple. A true disciple renews his mind. He knows the truth and he renews his mind. Renew your mind in the truth. Once again, we read in verses 31 and 32, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. True disciples know the truth and they continue to deepen their knowledge of the truth by renewing their mind. Now, Again, we've got to ask here, what does Jesus mean when he says true disciples will know the truth? Well, to answer that question, we need, again, to define the words. Uh, the word know implies a, a personal, experiential knowledge as opposed to mere factual knowledge. Uh, for example, in, in John fourteen seventeen, it says, You know, uh, same verb, you know the spirit of truth, for he dwells with you and will be in you. You know the Spirit because He's with you and in you. Uh, That's a very intimate and personal knowledge. So if you know the truth, you are affected by it. It becomes part of you. This is not just facts that you know. It's not just a a theology book that you read. It's personal. So this is the kind of knowing that he's talking about. And, And this idea, this concept of truth has a rich significance. In John's gospel, Jesus is the truth. Right? He is full of grace and truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life. That's why it's ironic that at the end of John, Pilate asks Jesus, what is truth? He's standing right in front of you. Jesus embodies the truth. Jesus presents the truth. So the truth is a revelation from Jesus and the revelation of Jesus. It's revealed through His Word and ministered to us through His Spirit. So to know the truth, disciples must hear his words and abide in him. In another sense, we could say that the the truth is closely associated with the gospel. This is obvious, right? Because because the truth is so closely associated with Jesus, it's going to be associated with the gospel. It has been revealed in Jesus and by Jesus, and it points to Jesus. This is what the truth does. I'm thinking of verses like Ephesians 1.13. That says, in Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. The truth, also known as the gospel, leads to saving faith. Now, if the truth is, is the full heart-penetrating reality of Christ and him crucified, how do we know it? He says, you will know the truth. You, you will experience it. It will become part of you. You, you will have this close connection and personal intimacy with Christ who embodies the truth. Well, how? how? How will we know it? Well, to start, we gain a deep knowledge of the truth as we remain in Christ and allow His Word to dwell in us richly. We must ponder and practice God's Word. Not only read it or hear it, but, but live it. Then we'll grow in wisdom. Then we'll grow in the truth. Wisdom and grace come from prolonged exposure to the Bible. There is no quick fix. This is a lifetime of just soaking it in, day in and day out, a prolonged exposure to it. We also know the truth as we walk in the Spirit. The Spirit of truth reveals the glory of Christ to us. 
the Spirit also gives us a right understanding of God's Word and empowers us to obey it. So we need to walk in the Spirit, daily submit to the Lordship of Christ, confess known sin, actively consume God's Word, and you will know the truth. As D.A. Carson put it, we come to know the truth not simply by intellectual assessment, but by a moral commitment, uh, by a life surrendered to it. Well, this takes us to an important application. In order to continually grow in your knowledge of the truth, we must intentionally renew our mind. Uh, Renewing your mind in the truth. And this renewing your mind is the process of replacing wrong thinking with biblical truth. It involves identifying lies you believe, sins you treasure, unbelief you coddle, so that you can repent of sin, resist temptation, and remain in Christ. We have to make every effort to replace sinful desires and actions with godly desires and actions. At times, this could mean disciplining your thoughts to avoid ungodly thinking or or monitoring your media intake to avoid worldly influence. Other times, it could mean meditating on God's Word and gospel promises with the goal of greater worship and obedience. It could also mean actively seeking and setting your mind on Christ, looking to Him to behold His glory and to consider His example, going to Him for rest and spiritual power. In many ways, you are what you think about, right? What you rehearse in your mind, what you preach to yourself, that shapes who you are. So in order to really renew your mind, we need to understand how our our thoughts and our desires and our emotions interact. Uh, Stick with me here for a moment. I want us to think kind of, um, I guess, philosophically, theologically about our personhood. How do our thoughts, emotions, desires interact? Well, our thoughts evaluate, right? Our thoughts evaluate. They make value judgments on things. While our emotions react, emotions react. They, they reveal what's important to us. Emotions aren't always trustworthy, but they do tell us what we think is important based upon how we react. And our desires direct, right? They, they compel us to action, so I made a diagram here, Dean put up on the screen there, to help us kind of understand this relationship um, of what's, what's going on here. So if you, if you see there that, that what we think about influences and, and informs what we feel, at least that, that's how we want it to be. Uh, it gets off track a little bit when what we feel, our emotions, have too much sway in the way we think right? Then that doesn't work quite as well. But what we think about and what we feel is going to inform and shape our desires. And our desires, our thinking and feeling, and at the core of this, our desires, will compel and propel our will, leading to actions. It's important that we understand this because in experience, it can feel like we just do things. You know, I didn't think about it, or I didn't feel, I just, I just kind of did things, or I just kind of said something, or I just kind of made a choice. But whatever you have done, said, or chosen, it, it, was, it was pre-kind of shaped within your thoughts and within your desires. 
So if we don't understand this, we can almost, we can almost feel like a slave to our desires. You know, I'm, I'm just acting out. You will always do what you desire, 100% of the time. You will always do what you desire. So if we're not thinking about, well, how are my desires shaped and formed, then, then we'll, in, in our experience, we'll kind of feel like we're a slave to our desires. When in actuality, our desires need to be shaped by knowing the truth, by remaining in Christ. And the response to that will be um, emotions that, that respond and react accordingly, properly, as it were. If we're not careful, we, we can feel like a victim. We can feel like, I, again, I just do things. When you know the truth, it sets you free. Right? If you, if you think about the, the chart there, if, if our thoughts are being renewed biblically and our desires are being informed biblically, then the will will, will desire these things and the actions will be godly. But the opposite is true also. If, we're, if our thoughts are on worldly things, selfish things, then our desires will be shaped that way and inevitably the will and the actions will lead to kind of sinful, selfish actions. To illustrate this another way, we could say, we could illustrate it with kind of our world's obsession with habits. In the world of productivity and efficiency and self-help, habits are a big deal, right? You can, you can read about the seven habits of a highly effective people. You can write them in your habit journal. You can download one of the many habit tracking apps. You can get accountability. You can implement countless strategies on forming and shaping your habits, in the end, in the end, some of these things, they do work, right? You can form new and better habits. You can get organized, exercise more, eat better, improve your productivity, study more effectively, work more efficiently. There's one thing, however, that you can't do apart from God's grace and the spiritual power that it produces. You can't change your motives, and you can't live in true freedom. Apart from God's grace, changing habits is really just a way of rearranging selfish desires. It's more effectively and efficiently getting what you want. We understand that the undisciplined person is a slave to desires. It's also true that when you are highly disciplined and have highly effective habits, you're also a slave to your desires. You're just able to reach your personal goals more effectively. More, you just are a slave more efficient, you're a more efficient slave. Uh, so, so we need transformed hearts, and we need this by remaining in Christ and renewing your minds. Otherwise, our deceitful desires will prevail. They'll lead us astray, right? These desires that operate right in the heart, they're subtle. It's, it's the subtle dripping of the faucet that leads us away from communing with Christ, delighting in Christ, our experience will be one of slavery if we're not renewing our minds so that we know the truth and are convinced of it and are living according to it. Uh, by the way here, the Jewish audience failed on this account too. Strike two for the Jewish audience. Uh, they were intimately acquainted with the lies and falsehood. Uh, the rest of John chapter 8 all the way to the end of the chapters shows that they associated with the devil who is the father of lies, and there's no truth in him. They didn't know the truth. 
Because they didn't abide in Christ, instead they abided in the Father, the devil. And Jesus calls them out in that in the rest of the chapter. But more personally to us, the question is, do you know the truth? Is it, continu- are you, is it continually setting the, you free? Is, is the truth operative in your life so that it's freeing you from a life of sin, from a life of slavery to sin, so that you're growing more holy, you're becoming more like Christ? Do you have a habit of intentionally renewing your mind? The trouble is, we don't always think we need God's Word. We don't always think we need to rehearse the gospel to ourselves. We don't think we need to be set free from wrong thinking or sinful living. So we, if we're not careful, we can coast through life, doing the next thing without too much thought to our ongoing need for daily grace and truth. And in the process, we might squander our freedom in Christ. Listen, when you know the truth... It sets you free, and it sets you free for a purpose, which is why our third and final mark of a true disciple is redeem your freedom. Redeem your freedom. We briefly saw how the truth will set you free. And when you think about it, that is an intriguing promise. I mean, this is, can we get an Amen. We rejoice that the truth has set, will set you free. This is something to be thankful for. We all want to be free. And if we're honest, we want a certain kind of freedom. We want freedom that work toward, works towards our happiness. Freedom and happiness go together. I mean, you could be enslaved to habits that are pleasurable, right? You could be a slave to habits that, that they're kind of pleasurable or happy kind of habits. But if you step back and consider it, you know that happiness without bondage is better. On the flip side, you could, you could be free in the sense that you're not enslaved, but you lack the motive and means to pursue happiness. Well, that too is deficient. We were designed to be free from slavery to sin and free to enjoy happy communion with Christ. Jesus' audience, again, they were blinded to their slavery to sin, and they were living a false hope. They they weren't taking part. They weren't set free. The truth had not made them free. That's why Jesus called them out, and they responded in verse 33. The Jewish audience said, they answered Jesus, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? What are you talking about, Jesus? We don't have shackles on. The Jews were com- completely missed the invitation to become Jesus' disciple. They had no concept of their need to be rescued because they were blinded to their sinful desire, by their sinful desires and their selfish ambition. They had a false assurance due to their association with Adam. Hey, we're not slaves. We're descendants of Abraham. Keep in mind that first, for the first century Jew to be an offspring of Abraham was equivalent to salvation. It's possible that they thought adherence to the Torah, to the Pentateuch, was the way to freedom. Jesus offered freedom, but the Jews denied their need for it because they failed to recognize their slavery to sin. They failed to recognize their need for a Savior. Ironically, while Jewish rabbis excuse me, may have taught that the study of the law makes you free, the law actually 
reveals your enslavement, doesn't it? It reveals your sin. It shows you that you're a slave. It shows you that you're in bondage to sin. And it points to Jesus. So the irony here is that Jews were, were, hey, were, were children of Abraham, were in the law, and Jesus in other places in John says, you don't get it. The law points to me. The law should direct you to freedom in Christ. It should show you your need. Jesus is the only way to genuine, lasting freedom. The first century Jews were burdened with man-made rules and traditions. And they were powerless. These things were powerless to deliver them from sin. They had an appearance of godliness, but no access to gospel power. Their hope was not in Christ, but ultimately ultimately in themselves. It reminds me of a John Piper quote. He said, Many people are willing to be God-centered as long as they feel that God is man-centered. The Jews, they were happy to, we're God-centered. We're about God. But they rejected God in the flesh. They rejected the one who was greater than Abraham. And the rejection of Jesus' words, it displayed, it publicized their slavery to sin. They were unwilling to die to sin and to self in order to gain communion to Christ. Sin and self were more precious than the Savior. I think it can be that way in our lives as well. We can sometimes put our confidence in false hope. We can think that daily devotions, church involvement, Christian parents, or Bible verses on the wall are the defining marks of a true disciple. We can recoil at the Bible's claim that apart from grace, we're slaves to sin. Or we can ignore the Bible's call in our life to deny self and live sacrificially. We can sometimes fail to live with a desperation that believes we need to be rescued and we need daily life support in the gospel. We may even prop ourselves up with all sorts of really good Christian practices without realizing that we're doing these things primarily for our own benefit. The point is that we are too easily deceived and lulled to sleep. That's why Jesus' response is so important. It cuts right to the heart. He says in verse 34, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. The truly, truly formula indicates the very important and universal truth. In this case, those who practice sin are slaves to sin. If you have a habit, a practice, a pattern of sin in your life, then guess what? You're enslaved to sin. Sin is desiring something above Jesus and then acting on it. And practicing sin is a lifestyle of sin. It's a habitual pattern of sin. The person who lives in sin is a slave to sin. Now, at first, we might gloss over and say, you know what, this category doesn't apply to me. But consider the deceitfulness and deceitful desires of your heart. Listen to some of these questions. What wants and desires do you have that are contrary to God's desires? What wants and desires do you have that agree with God's desires, but you want so much that you're willing to sin to get it or sin when you don't get it? What, ex- what expectations dominate your heart so that you have ungodly thoughts, words, or actions when those expectations go unrealized? What do you consider your rights 
And how do you respond when those rights are denied? What standards have you set for your life that are, that are not God's standards? Or what mindset have you adopted that is opposed to God's truth? We all have areas of sinful desires and thoughts and expectations. But that doesn't, that doesn't automatically make us a slave to sin, does it? But all of these areas, they're potential idols in our heart. Right? We all have deceitful desires operating that can be, potentially become slavery to sin. If, if we're not keeping them in check, if we're not renewing our mind, if we're not communing in Christ, then these things can creep up and grow. The weeds can sprout. Left, if left unchecked, they can all lead to enslavement. The point is, we're vulnerable. True disciples are free from enslavement to sin, but we're all prone to sin. We're all susceptible to idolatry. We all need to remain in Christ and renew our minds. True disciples don't practice sin because they enjoy their Savior. They abide in Christ. 1 John 3, 6 says, No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. Or verse 9, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's, God's seed abides in Him. And He cannot keep on sinning because He has been born of God. True disciples still sin, right? True disciples still sin, but they return to Christ. They remain in Him, and they renew their minds with the truth so they can continue to grow and overcome sin. And as they do those things, true disciples, they redeem their freedom. They redeem their freedom. They live as slaves to Christ, and they live to serve others. In Galatians 5, 1 and 13, it says, Paul wrote, For freedom Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. When you are made in Christ and you renew your mind, you are free to love God and serve others. You have a diminishing desire for sin and a growing desire for Christ. The gospel has liberated you so that you can love others and prove to be Jesus' disciples. We redeem our freedom with a holy happiness in Him. So as we close here, how do we respond to God's Word? For some, you need to admit that your, your need for Christ to save you from your sin and make you a true disciple. For some, you've never abided in Christ, known the truth, or been set free from sin, and today must be the day of salvation. Today must be the day of, Lord, this is not me, and I want it to be me. I submit my life to you. For some, you may need to take inventory and self-examine. Do these marks of true disciple resonate with you? Have you built your Christian experience on something else? For others, you may need to admit that your priorities need to be refocused. You need to surrender your personal agendas and fully come to God as a true disciple. These marks are, of a true disciple are part of your life, but too often they're operating in the background. For still others, the call is to excel still more. Take courage and keep going. You are remaining in Christ. You are renewing your mind. You are redeeming your freedom. Not perfectly, but faithfully. Keep pressing in. Keep running the race. In the end, Jesus' true disciples are truly free to delight in Him. And the most distinguishing mark of a true disciple is that he or she loves Jesus. He can say with the disciples, Lord, 
to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Let's pray together. Father, we've been kind of hit hard by the reality of your word. Uh, if, if we're honest, uh, sometimes we don't, we're not intentional enough to think about these things. But Father, wherever we're at this morning, wherever each person in each seat is at this morning, I pray that your word would fall upon their hearts in the, in the appropriate ways. Perhaps encouragement, perhaps conviction, uh, perhaps clarity. Uh, would your word take root and bear fruit in their life? Uh, God, we, we thank you that Jesus, you, you, you offered this clarity, you offered this, this truth about what it means to be your disciple because we want to know, we want to follow. Jesus, we do, we do love you. We thank you that it made it possible for us to be united with you. Uh, we thank you that we can know the truth and be set free from sin. We, re- we rejoice in these wonderful truths and we want to live accordingly. Lord, help us. We're desperate for grace. We're desperate for you to continue to work. Help us persevere. Help us to grow. Help us to live as your children, we ask in Jesus. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary North. For more information about our church, visit redemptioncalgarynorth.com.